Rethinking Democracy, the podcast in which we ask, where are we, how did we get here, and where might we be going? In the spring of 2020, as many countries went into lockdown, the Trinity Longroom Hub, Arts and Humanities Research Institute, Trinity College Dublin, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Centre at Columbia University organised a webinar series to explore the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on democracies worldwide. And now, as we get used to living with COVID, we're back to once again rethink democracy. I'm Elspeth Payne. I'm the Beata Schuler Research Fellow in the Trinity Longroom Hub, where I work on the Institute's Crisis of Democracy project. I'm also the host of this podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined in this episode by Melody Barnes. Melody is co-director for policy and public affairs for the Democracy Initiative at the University of Virginia. She is the Dorothy Danforth Compton Professor of Practice at the Miller Center of Public Affairs and a distinguished fellow at the School of Law. From 2009 until January 2012, Melody was assistant to the president and the director of the White House Domestic Policy Council. She also served as a chief counsel to Senator Edward M. Kennedy on the US Senate Judiciary Committee. At the original series, Melody spoke about challenges to the public sphere or public square. For marginalized communities, for those who have remained on the fringes, who have been pushed into the fringes, the crisis caused by COVID-19 is layered on top of chronic challenges, including the delta between liberal democratic aspirations and the reality of democratic life. She spoke about the tragic killings of two African-American men in the US, Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. Arrests had just been made in the Ahmaud Arbery case, three months after his death, and the brutal murder of George Floyd had taken place just two days previously. For many listeners, particularly those outside of the US, this was the first time they had heard George Floyd's name. The video of George Floyd's brutal killing was subsequently shared and reshared across social media platforms and shown on traditional news outlets worldwide. The protests that began in Minneapolis soon spread. Millions turned out in towns and cities, not just in the United States, but globally, demanding justice for George Floyd and an end to racism and police brutality. Other high-profile calls for justice for other victims of police brutality followed, including Brianna Taylor, Daniel Prude, Jacob Blake, and Walter Wallace Jr. Melody went on to explain. The public square has played a critical role in bringing attention to injustice and creating an opportunity for greater accountability. And as a result, citizens will create a public square and noted the role of technology and social media in expanding this public square. Melody ended with a call to rethink, to think more expansively about the who, and then to create a more robust and more inclusive public square supported by new infrastructures and able to solve problems and build consensus. Melody, welcome back. So much has happened since we last spoke, not only in terms of Black Lives Matter movement, but of course, with the election in the United States. Since that conversation we had several months ago, which in some ways seems like just yesterday, in other ways it seems like it was years ago, protests over the summer were like nothing that I've ever seen before, um, up to and including the city that I live in, Richmond, Virginia, which is about 
to an hour and 45 minutes south of Washington, DC. And uh, I always bemoan saying this, but it is important for context. Richmond was the last capital of the Confederacy during the Civil War. And that is important because the street, in fact, the street I live on has large monuments to Confederate generals, including one to General Robert E. Lee, that's just mammoth. It's, it's huge. It's, I think, a couple tons. Um, the pedestal itself, I think, is well over 40 feet high, and that's before you even get to the statue. And I bring that up because that statue and the circle on which it sits which is land that's owned by the state, by the Commonwealth of Virginia, became a magnet for protest here in the city of Richmond, which previously had not been a place that had seen many protests before, ever. <laughs> um, so that just gives you a sense of the veracity um, and ferocity um, uh, around these, um, these protests this summer. So in Minneapolis, where George Floyd was murdered, to Chicago, New York, Richmond, Los Angeles, I mean, literally all over the country. And while every protest was somewhat different, in most cases, the main theme was a call for social justice. Um, and in many places, a call for rethinking the criminal justice system in the United States. And one of the narratives that it's kind of a leitmotif across those protests was one for quote defunding the police mm -hmm. which also has an interesting relationship to the election that we just had and those within the democratic party who are debating that language itself um, what i think most people mean by that is rethinking the resources that are solely put into police departments uh, and thinking about also using some of those resources for mental health services um, and other social services so that before either before people find themselves engaged with the criminal justice system, we've addressed those earlier chronic challenges or when a person is engaged with the criminal justice system, if there's someone who's got mental health issues that we're dealing with the mental health problems and we have trained professionals to do that as opposed to requiring police who are trained to do something else, trying to handle some, someone who's got mental health issues. Um, so that became a large part of the debate. It also played out in the election because there then became a call from the current president, President Trump, uh, for law and order, which is a, a narrative he'd been using since 2016. Mm -hmm. um, but it, he used his bully pulpit, the, his megaphone to make that call. Um, also to speak to, and these are, this is his characterization, not mine, to speak to suburban women um, about the, what was going to happen to the suburbs unless some of this quote was brought under control. And I, he was referring to the social unrest, the protests, and in some places those protests um, did become violent, um, but in large part they were peaceful protests. 
And I believe, many believe that there were people who were seeding that violence in, intentionally um, to give the protesters, uh, to give the Black Lives Matter coalition and others a bad name. So it was a summer that saw attention brought to issues of social justice, issues of the American criminal justice system um, like never before. And I think, and this is the last thing I, I will say, I believe that at least for a period of time and for many now, months after the George Floyd video was broadcast for the first time, that people saw what many people of color in particular African-Americans had been saying was a problem for quite some time. Um, that there's a level of state violence uh, that was killing, is killing people of color often. So even after Trayvon Martin, um, even after many of the other uh, incidents that were not captured on video or only pieces of them were captured on video. This was a moment when millions upon millions upon millions of people saw someone with his knee on the neck of a person, a police officer with his hands in his pockets, when that person and others were begging him to stop and then that person died. And I think that started to change the perception of what's what was and has been happening in communities of color literally for hundreds of years. Do you think there's any danger that this issue will be forgotten as we move away from it with time? Or do you think that, that actually there'll be real change after this? I think change has started in some communities. I think with a new president that we will see additional, not only conversation, but attention to public policy on these issues. And quite frankly, I think the communities that and the activists that were protesting um, and have been working on these issues for many, many years won't let this go away. Mm. Um, so there will be continued pressure. And, and you mentioned all the um, protests spreading throughout the US. And I guess one, one thing that was remarkable, obviously, was that also this became a global movement. Um, so do you think this is something that's going to happen on a global level? I do, um, for the exact reasons that you mentioned. You know, we're seeing pro we're seeing protests in Paris, and we were seeing you know protests literally around the world, um, which was really dramatic um, to see that. And you know, I remember after the 2016 election, watching the marches and the protests again globally. Um, here we have people protesting around a common issue. And I, I imagine that there is a conversation taking place among activists, among nonprofit leaders uh, about what's, what is happening in different communities, what solutions are being brought to bear to the problem places where they can learn from one another. I mean, I think it's one of the most fascinating aspects of this issue today and one of the useful roles for social media um, and the way that it has made the world much smaller is that people are able to engage and to learn from one another um, and to derive energy from movements 
taking place thousands and thousands of miles away. In our last talk, you you mentioned social media and technology being that double-edged sword, the kind of positives and negatives. Something I I thought about when I was, you know, preparing for today was about that role of of technology and social media in the U.S. elections, what we've just seen. Is this a moment of hope in terms of of social media outlets? Like I'm thinking about Twitter and the, the... the fake news stories that they found a way to deal with them better perhaps than some of the public broadcasters. Social media will always be this double-edged sword unless we address some of the negatives um, at scale. Uh, But the double-edged sword exists right now and in the near term because of the negatives that are still prevalent, um, because there are still places and because there are platforms that are not dealing with the uh, flat out misinformation. I mean, you can really just live Mm -hmm. in a parallel universe. Um, And at the same time, for all the reasons that we've been discussing, the ability to amplify, to organize, to connect um, across communities that are not only domestic, but international. And for people to understand the breadth and the scope of the issues that are being dealt with and to learn from one another. I mean, that's that's significant and to see, to find common cause in communities of people that, in places where people have never been before. Even though the 2020 election was by the official that was in charge of making sure that there was, wouldn't be tampering. The US 2020 election has been declared the safest um, in history. Mm-hmm. And that is something that we should all breathe a sigh of relief about. Um, but at the same time, watching the misinformation without correction, uh, in some parts of the virtual world, the digital world can only leave us with great concern. And I think policymakers are going to start to look at that issue at an even more, in a more aggressive way. So so that brings me nicely onto my second big question and that's, you know, what What right now in this very different stage of the pandemic, kind of half a year on, do you think are the main challenges and threats that democratic systems and democratic cultures are facing? The chronic challenges persist. Um, they have been with us, not just for decades, but for generations, in some cases, hundreds of years. And those, those problems persist. I think, you know, some of the more urgent questions particularly as we look at this, that, that question through the lens of the pandemic, you know, we can see our way towards a vaccine. Uh, that's going to be substantial. Uh, and I think it's a day that we all, well, many of us can't wait for. I mean, there are, there are a substantial number of people who are concerned about taking the vaccine. And we watch the role that science has played is playing in doing something faster than we've ever witnessed before. How we, that gets distributed, who has access to it, the distribution mechanisms for it, 
I think will take us back to some of those chronic questions and challenges. And how will the most vulnerable people, the poorest people, um, people living in the worst imaginable circumstances get this vaccine? You know, in some ways it's a microcosm of some of the larger questions. Um, and that is an issue that will have to be solved and it reflects larger equity issues and questions that again, take us back to, to those chronic challenges. So I, I, I think that we have witnessed some of the, the best of the enlightenment that supports <laughs> democracy um, and data and reasoning and that are bringing us hopefully a vaccine and that have brought us the information that we need to tackle this disease, you know, social distancing, mask wearing, contract tracing, all of those things. And at the same time, we have witnessed and continue to witness those who push back on all of that to the extent, and I'm always stunned when I hear this, nurses and doctors here who have reported on people who are literally in their beds dying of COVID-19, who will still say, I can't be dying of this, this disease does not exist. Um, and that reflects something that has, has and is happening in democratic culture that has to, can only give us great concern. And then when you think about the US election, 79, almost 80 million people voted for president-elect Biden. State after state after state, that was a battleground state. You know, there were recounts, there um, were um, court cases brought by the Trump campaign. And to a state, they have all, they are certifying their votes and their ballots and saying that president-elect Joe Biden is indeed the president-elect. And there are still a number, millions of people who are being encouraged by President Trump to believe that that is not true. And that is one of the most significant threats, certainly to American democracy when an election is not considered to be legitimate, <clears throat> when people don't believe that their votes, um, the votes that they cast were fairly cast and counted and that the outcome is reflective of that and the peaceful transfer of power, which it has taken us weeks and weeks um, to get to this point for something that should have been acknowledged some time ago when all of those things are being threatened, then democracy is obviously threatened as well. So we're coming back to that that misinformation, that the, the right. media sphere again. I remember, I think it was um, the doomsday clock last year when it was put nearer to midnight, um, added for the first time misinformation. Um, and I guess some, some of that comes back to the same question of what do we do? You know, is it that that we try and look at the model that Twitter had in the last US election to verify information and try and do it on scale. But is some of this about, about healing divides, about um, looking at what the democratic culture is and, and how do we bring people along with us, if that makes sense? That's maybe not the right phrasing, but you know, how do you communicate to those people that this is a fair election, that this is a safe vaccine, that this is a real threat? How do we fix the, the problem? 
Sure, such a great question. Well, one, I look at the people, um, Republicans, members of President Trump's own party who have held various roles of responsibility, whether they were county clerks or election officials, the governor, the, you know, senior elected or appointed Republican officials in the state of Georgia, in the state of Arizona, in the state of Michigan, in the state of Pennsylvania, federal judges appointed by President Trump, who over and over and over again have said country over party, our election was fair and we, are, we have to move on, we're certifying these ballots. I think having people of courage um, and conviction, even when it means that their party, their side, their point of view, however you wanna characterize it, will be on the losing side, say this is the right thing to do for democracy, um, that we have to have more people doing that and we have to support those efforts. Um, I also, I recently wrote an article for a piece uh, periodical in the US called the Democracy Journal about the culture of democracy and this problem and this threat and the importance of the danger when we fail to acknowledge data and fact and truth. Uh, and quoting James Baldwin's reflections uh, when he said that, you know, we have failed to excavate our history from the rubble of romance, that there are narratives that people like to surround themselves with as opposed to being willing to acknowledge truth and fact. And one of the things that I have, that I mentioned, that I wrote about in this article was the importance of truth, accountability, reconciliation and healing processes that we've seen certainly take place internationally. Um, we've also seen take place in the United States. And while not perfect, we can learn from all of those processes um, so that people, I think, in particular in communities can listen to, can hear one another, can work toward an understanding of truth and fact um, and grapple with that, but in a way that, yes, points towards accountability in those communities, but also points to healing and reconciliation and a path forward. Um, I, I think we have, and this is not just constrained uh, to the United States, that we have often failed to acknowledge the cultural wounds and the cultural trauma, and we've tried to push past it and move on and ignore it. And it leaves people with misinformation and it also leaves people without the sense of, of being heard and being listened to. Um, and it certainly then doesn't allow us to uh, allow our public policy and our practices to be informed by it. Um, there are, you know, there are a number of different things. There is no one thing that will solve this problem, 
but I think those kinds of things are important. You mentioned the vaccine that, that we've heard a lot about vaccines now. You wait for one and we have three. Um, but, you know, and, and hopefully in that in that six months or in a year when they've rolled them out and hopefully you know, people will take them enough to get herd immunity and we're re returning to some sort of normality. What sort of future do you think we're, we're heading into? It is a challenging, challenging time. I think you know, we're witnessing countries around the world, democracies around the world struggle with these issues. I mean, there is it, what is it? Someone says, um, you know, we may not be repeating each other, but they're certainly rhyming. Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeing the similarities in, in countries around the world with the threats to democracy, the desire for more authoritarian, kind of quote, strong man um, leaders. Uh, and the, the struggle that people often have as they are grappling with complexity and nuance when the answer isn't an easy yes or no, but it is much more nuanced than that, when ways of life uh, are seen as being upended by new immigrants or, or <laughs> those who have been in the country for hundreds of years, but have been locked into this hierarchy of human value. You know, when all of the, we're seeing those things, all those things take place in different forms around the world. But I do take hope in um, the growing voices across diverse communities to address these issues. Um, the insistence that we address these issues. Pol policymakers, people who are taking office um, and senior positions, as we're seeing in the United States, who have a commitment to addressing these issues, um, whether they be you know, social media or issues of economic security and inequality, um, to education, the, the list goes on. And hopefully also a desire to create the best of democratic culture, which requires tolerance and pluralism, certainly rule of law, um, that it has to insist upon civil debate in the public square, has to insist upon reason and fact. There will always be loud voices pushing for calling for something else. And we, we, are, we see that internationally as well as domestically. But I also think that we've got a growing coalition of those who are insisting for for the opposite, you know, here the, there's the the story, and who knows if it's true, that what after the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin walked out of the hall in Philadelphia and bumped into a woman, and she said, "You know, what have you given us, a monarchy or a republic?" And he said, "A republic if you can keep it." And I, who knows if it really happened, um, but I take the story to mean that that. It requires all of us to do this work. And it isn't just on election day. And election days are critically important, but every day in between is also critically important. Thank you, Melody, and thank you for listening. The original series, Rethinking Democracy in an Age of Pandemic, ran for five weeks across April and May 2020. 
It engaged academics and journalists on questions about borders, marginalisation, inequality, the everyday and the public sphere. A free curriculum with the webinar recordings as well as suggested readings and resources for this original series has just been launched. More information on the project, as well as links to the curriculum and all resources mentioned in this episode, are available on the Trinity Longroom Hub website, www.tcd.ie forward slash Trinity Longroom Hub, or the Society of Fellow and Heyman Centre website, www.heymancentre.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, at TLR Hub, and at SOF Heyman. <laughs>